0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today, a conversation with David Marinus about his new book, Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. Jim Thorpe rose to world fame as a mythic talent who excelled at every sport. Even in the golden age of sports celebrities, he was one of a kind. But despite his colossal skills, Thorpe's life was a struggle against the odds. As a member of the SAC and Fox Nation, he encountered duplicitous authorities who turned away from him when their reputations were at risk. At Carlisle uh, Indian School, he dealt with racist assimilation philosophy, killed the Indian, saved the man. And his later life was troubled by alcohol, broken marriages, and uh, financial distress. But uh, through it all, he survived complications and all, and so did the myth. David Marinus is associate editor of the Washington Post, a distinguished visiting professor at Vanderbilt University. He's won two Pulitzer Prizes for journalism and was a finalist three other times. Among his best-selling books are biographies of Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Roberto Clemente, and Vince Lombardi and a trilogy about the 1960s. David Marinus, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be with you, Tom. Uh, so what brought you to Jim Thorpe? Well,
1: you know, I consider this the third book in a trilogy of sports biographies that are about uh, figures who transcend sports. Uh, First, Vince Lombardi, who's not just a great football coach, but also emblematic of uh, the mythology of competition and sport competition and success in American life and what it takes and what it costs. Roberto Clemente, not just a great uh, ball player, but also, that rare athletic figure who truly was a hero dying, trying to deliver humanitarian aid to Nicaragua after an earthquake. And so both of those had both a dramatic arc to the athletic accomplishments of the figure and also could illuminate uh, American history and sociology. The same with Jim Thorpe, not just a transcendent athlete whose accomplishments were unparalleled, but also a chance for me to write about the Native American experience through his life as a member of the Sac and Fox Nation.
0: So Jim Thorpe, was—he uh, he's voted, and you say it wasn't even close, uh, your greatest athlete of, uh, you know, that half of the century. Um, but he's, you, you say you're interested in the making of the man, but also the creation of the myth. Uh, both are kind of mixed up in each other, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. That You know, that's true of almost any... Um, great figure in American history, whether it 's babe Ruth or George washington or or the mythical Paul Bunyan right so Thorpe was of that that nature, and so you, you know he he had magnificent accomplishments and yet there was always a tendency to to, to exaggerate them um, by sports writers and people telling the stories down through the years
0: uh, Thorpe himself understand from your book uh, you know was not above uh myth-making, about himself?
1: Well, you know, it's kind of like war stories or stories about uh, catching fish. I mean, he he told the story that that once he hit home runs into three separate states in one game, <laughs> uh, playing in Texarkana, Texas, into Arkansas, Texas, and Oklahoma. He did hit three home runs in that game, but it's a geographic impossibility to hit them into three states. So it's, that's sort of myth-making on his part.
0: Hmm. Uh, so tell us a little bit about, we we know kind of the broad outlines, but um, it seems like he could do anything, any sport.
1: Absolutely. I mean, here you had a, a gold medalist in the decathlon and pentathlon at the 1912 Stockholm Olympics, an All-American football player at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, uh, the, uh, the first great professional football player. The first president of what would become the National Football League, and a major league baseball player. He also played basketball with a traveling squad, um, was a great ballroom dancer, and was even supposed to be good at marbles. <laughs>
0: well, yeah, yeah, one of the one of those people, right? And, and not only one of those people, yeah. but one of the best of one of those people, right? That, that he just had he just had uh, immense natural talent. Um,
1: he, he was a, yes.
0: Yeah, go ahead. Hmm.
1: I was going to say, he was great at everything. He wasn't the best baseball player. He was certainly better than Michael Jordan, and he got better as he came along. But but just to make the major leagues was quite an accomplishment.
0: Hmm. Um, tell me a little bit about his early life. He's in, in uh, Oklahoma, right? What is now Oklahoma?
1: Yeah, it was the Indian Territory. He was born in 1887 along the North Canadian River um, in in what would become Oklahoma. Um, his the title of the book, Path Lit by Lightning, is a poetic translation of his Sac and fox name, Wathohawk, because the night that he and his twin Charlie were born, there was a thunderstorm with lightning along, along the, the river path. Um, he, from a pretty early age, was sent to Indian boarding schools, uh, first the Sac and fox boarding school in Stroud, then the Haskell Institute in Kansas, and finally, at age sixteen, he arrived at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School uh, in Carlisle, Pennsylvania.
0: A lot of people wouldn't know that he was a twin.
1: No, I know, and you know, his twin Charlie died when they when he was nine years old, um, when they were at the Second Fox Boarding School, um, and which was quite a traumatic blow, as you know. I mean, twins are always very close, and and the loss of his twin brother was was uh, traumatic for Jim. Mm.
0: What did the young Jim Thorpe like to do? Did did he did he know he was good at sports? Did he did he encounter sports before he went to Carlisle? What was he doing when he young, when he was young?
1: Well, he you know it's interesting uh, and shocking to me that when he got to Carlisle at age sixteen, he was five foot five and one hundred fifteen pounds. Um, he had played a little bit of of sort of uh, tag football at at Haskell Institute, and he'd watched the great. Um, Indian football teams at Haskell and Carlisle before that, and he loved football, but he no one could have expected that he would develop into the great athlete that he became so mostly as a kid, he you know he went hunting and fishing with his father, um, he played along the river with his buddies um, but but the actual organized activities of sports only started when he got to Carlisle. <laughs>
0: Uh, so tell me about Carlisle. I think we we have a broad outline of this. This was, um, you know, this was part of the kind of the official way to deal with uh, Native Americans at the time, right?
1: Yeah, Carlisle was the flagship school of the U.S. government uh, for Indian boarding schools. It was founded in 1879 um, by Richard Henry Pratt, who was a U.S. military officer. The first students there were mostly Lakota Sioux from the Dakotas. This is only three years after the Battle of the Little Bighorn. And the policy of this school was kill the Indian, save the man, which meant try to assimilate and acculturate them so much that their their heritage was missing and they would become assimilated into white society. That means take away their religion, their language, their culture, cut their hair, dress them in the uniforms of the U.S. Cavalry in that effort. So it was uh, meant to be um, beneficial in the sense that better to change them than to the genocide of the mid-19th century, but it was dehumanizing at the same time.
0: And, you know, uh, kill the Indian, save the man. The, uh, 186 students uh, died there, you say?
1: Yes, and to visit the uh, Indian Cemetery at what is now the Army War College, which was the site of the uh, Carlisle Indian Industrial School, was the most haunting experience of my research, to see all the names of the young Indians who were sent there and died. And only in the last uh, several years has the U.S. government allowed those bones to be repatriated to their homeland. So some of the Oneida and Lakota have finally gotten those young children back.
0: Mm. By the way, you mentioned the those the, the earliest uh, students, right, the Lakota. Um you say you write that they uh, a lot of these young people thought they were going to go show their prowess and die there and some of them did die there.
1: Yeah, Luther Standing Bear, the son of a Lakota chief, was in that first group of students in 1879. And he later wrote a book about his experiences and said that he thought he was being sent there to show his bravery and to die for his people. And that was kind of the sensibility of many of those young kids who went during that period. And yes, many of them did die.
0: I want to continue chronologically, but I want to skip ahead just to the theme of... You know, stereotyping the Native Americans, uh, racism, which, you know, funneled uh, even the f- figures like Jim Thorpe into, I guess, certain paths. Uh, maybe uh, talk a little bit about that. This um, is an incredibly great athlete, but there's some limitations, I, I would imagine, placed uh, because of his race.
1: Yeah, there were uh, throughout his life. But, you know, the entire, uh, the, the way that, that Native American athletes were covered in the press, showed the beginning of those stereotypes. I mean, every athlete was called chief, you know, whether they were or not. Um, when they were playing, they'd, they'd be scalping or they'd go on the war path. I mean, that was just the way that anything written about Native Americans was dealt with during that period. Um, so Jim Thorpe encountered that throughout his life. and And the way I look at it is that, for various reasons, um, the dominant white society in this country romanticized and diminished Indians at the very same time. You know, so many white Americans claim some Indian blood in them, at the same time that they they dehumanize them in other ways.
0: Yeah, you. Uh, I love the way you begin the preface to your book. Uh, you say. Uh... Uh, you know, an Indian tells you he was an Indian, and uh, inevitably, nine out of ten times, uh, the person's going to tell you about his Cherokee ancestor, for, for one thing.
1: It's an interesting contrast that I found between the way that that society deal, dealt with uh, Native Americans versus African Americans. Um, you know, Jim Thorpe, for all of the ways that he was discriminated against, could play Major League Baseball, at a time when African-Americans could not because of uh, segregation. Uh, he could go to the Deep South, deliver a speech at the uh, Touchdown Club in Jackson, Mississippi at a time when the only African-Americans allowed in there were the waiters, and yet he couldn't really eat at that club. I mean, so that, you know there are various ways that, that Native Americans were discriminated against, um, but it was somewhat different from the way African-Americans were treated. <sighs>
0: Uh, so tell me about uh, Jim Thorpe's uh, time at uh, Carlisle. You, you write, it's kind of mixed, right? There, There's obvious problems there at Carlisle, but some people had a good experience. Jim Thorpe would not have become known, I guess, without discovering sports and his prowess there at Carlisle.
1: No, you're absolutely right. That, that's sort of the contradictions of the place. His first three years there, he did not play sports, and he was part of a process that there was somewhat of a scam called the outing system where students were sent off to work on uh, farms in nearby Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland. And um, for, you know, basically as indentured servants, uh, paid a minimum amount of salary, which went to the school first. And then the school was also getting paid by the federal government for having them as students. So that was Jim's first experience there. Then in 1907, um, he finally... Uh, was actually working on the farm at Carlisle and walked by the track and saw some high jumpers trying to clear the bar at six feet. And Jim in his overalls easily cleared it. And the next day he was on the track team. uh, The following year he was the star of the football team and then rose on to become an all-American football player and the greatest track man in, in America.
0: Uh, Of course, another famous name, Pop Warner, right? His football coach there at Carlisle.
1: Yes, and I would say that there was an interesting codependence between Thorpe and Pop Warner. Um, They rose to fame together. Um, Pop Warner was a brilliant football coach. Um, He was one of the early proponents of the forward pass. Uh, He developed many uh, of the formations, the single-wing and double-wing formations, Um, And the Carlisle Indian football teams were great during that period, even before Jim Thorpe came along, but even better when Thorpe was there. But Pop Warner um, was not a reputable human being. Um, At the time of Jim's greatest crisis, after he'd won the gold medals and they were rescinded because he played uh, Bush League baseball, Pop Warner, who knew all about it, uh, denied any knowledge of it to save his own reputation. And then a couple of years later, there was a congressional investigation of Carlisle that found that, that Warner was also um, physically and mentally abusing many of his Indian players who had turned against him by then.
0: Mm. Uh, he And we continue to have Pop Warner Leagues around the nation, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah.
1: you know, Pop Warner football is what you associate with youth football today. And, and he was a great coach. You know, he went on from Carlisle to to win several uh, national championships at Pitt, and then at Stanford. Um, but his experiences at Carlisle and the way he treated Jim Thorpe during that moment of crisis um, were very questionable.
0: Hmm. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to hear about the, the Olympics. Uh, you know, fascinating period, tragic in the, in the end. Um, and, you know, and lately in the news, uh, finally... Uh, after more yeah. than a hundred years, the those gold medals have have been officially reinstated. Um, we're talking about Jim Thorpe. The biography is a path lit by lightning, and the author is a writer, David Marinus. He's author of uh, uh, several other uh, wonderful biographies, including of uh, Roberto Clemente and Vince Lombardi. And he says this uh, Jim Thorpe completes a trilogy here. Um. Also, he has trilogy about the 1960s. He's uh, done biographies of Bill Clinton and uh, Barack Obama. B- Obama. You can find him at davidmarinus.com. We'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams. Today, we're hearing the fascinating story of Jim Thorpe. He rose to world fame as a mythic talent, excelled at every sport, uh, including uh, won gold medals in the decathlon and pentathlon of the 1912 Stockholm Olympics. And illustrative of the uh, the, the barriers he had to overcome, the, the obstacles all throughout his life, uh, those medals were taken away from him. Um, finally, over 100 years later, just recently, in the last couple of months, they were, re- you know uh, restored. Um, and uh, the new biography is uh, Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. The author of, is David Marinus. You can find him at davidmarinus.com. He's previously author of uh, biographies of Roberto Clemente and Vince Lombardi, among many other uh, books. Uh, so, David Marinus, before we resume the story of Jim Thorpe, I'm, I'm fascinated by your research process. You, you call this the four legs of the table. Tell me about this and how it applies to this biography.
1: Well, this biography was a little different, Tom, but the four legs of the table, the first leg is go there, wherever there is, um, to understand the geosociology of whatever I'm writing about, the people I'm writing about. So, for instance, for the Lombardi book, it meant turning to my wife and uttering the famous and uh, loving words, how would you like to move to Green Bay for the winter, <laughs> uh, to which she responded, burr, but we did it. And it made an enormous difference. And uh, I've been paying her back ever since. You know, let's go to Rome for my book on the Rome <laughs> Olympics to Puerto Rico for Clemente to uh, Kenya and Hawaii and Indonesia for Obama. Um, but that's the first uh, leg of my table. The second is do as many interviews as I can with as many people as I can. For example, for the Clinton biography, I interviewed 450 people, um, almost that many for Lombardi. Uh, the third is to get as many documents as I can, go to as many archives as, as there are available. So for the fourth uh, book, I meant traveling to 22 different archives around the country. Um, although some of them now are digitized, you know, the internet can be uh, good or bad or neutral, but one of the great things about it is so many primary documents are now digitized and, and can be reachable online. And the fourth uh, leg of my table. I say, is to look for what's not there, to break through the mythology and try to find the real story. Now, this book was different for better and worse. Um, because of COVID, uh, I couldn't go every place I wanted to. I, I wanted to live in Oklahoma for a while, but that was precluded because of COVID. Um, I couldn't get to Stockholm um, because of COVID, although I did find a, a fabulous uh, two-hour documentary It took old newsreels from the 1912 Stockholm Olympics, um, done by a documentarian named Adrian Wood, um, and he really sort of modernized them so you can see it in real time, what was happening. So I felt like I was there, even though I never got to Stockholm. Um, On the the plus side of COVID was I had nothing else to do. (laughs) So, you know, stuck in my house, fine. uh, I'm going to write for 12 or 13 hours a day. So I actually finished this book. Uh, more quickly than I might have, if not for COVID, although it precluded me going to some of the places I wanted to.
0: So we talked about, of course, the man, you're trying to get the man, you're trying to get the myth as well. Um, There must have been some surprises, some delightful things that that came from this research. Is there one or two you could tell us about, favorite stories or anecdotes?
1: Well, one of the surprises that delighted me um, was that at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, one of Jim's teachers in business classes, was the great American poet, Marianne Moore. Yeah. Um, you know, it just seems so odd that that would be the case. But she uh, had basically grown up in Carlisle, had graduated from Bryn Mawr. This was before she rose to fame as a poet. Um, and she taught at the Carlisle School for a few years. And she taught, among others, Jim Thorpe, and heard, and watched him on the football field and, and in the track. And her descriptions of that are 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 wonderful. So, you know, that was one great surprise. Another one uh, was how many famous people in American life went through Jim Thorpe's life. Um, He went to um, the Olympics with George S. Patton, who was on that Olympic team as a modern pentathlete. Uh, He played football against Dwight Eisenhower in a famous game where the Carlisle Indians beat uh, Army. Uh, 27 to 6, sort of a, a thrashing, a, a getting even at last uh, on a level playing field. Eisenhower was on that team. Uh, Omar Bradley was on the bench of that team. Uh, then uh, he played baseball with so many uh, Hall of Famers, uh, including Christy Mathewson on the New York Giants. Um, he uh, went to Hollywood and acted in about 70 movies and, and befriended uh, Bob Hope, and so many other uh, Hollywood actors. So you can you almost trace it. And, and then one of my favorite moments was when he was playing football in 1922 for an NFL team called the Oorang Indians, um, who were all Native Americans. It was an odd little team that played in the NFL for two years. They played a team called the Milwaukee Badgers in Milwaukee. And on the Milwaukee team was the great uh, Paul Robeson, you know, the great singer and actor and an activist. So an African-American who scored two touchdowns in that game. But, uh, you know, I say that of all the places that I might have wanted to have been a fly on the wall, it was in Milwaukee to see that game between the a Native American Colossus and the African-American Colossus, Thorpe against Robeson.
0: <laughs> Can't make this up, can you? That, that would have been a, no. a tremendous opportunity to see that. Uh, so let's talk about the Olympics. Uh, 1912, Stockholm. Uh, tell me first about uh, Thorpe's accomplishments there.
1: Well, first he won the pentathlon, which is five events, um, just uh, slaughtered the field. Then in three days, he he won the decathlon, which is 10 events. Um, and again, you know, scoring systems in, in those uh, events change over the decades. So it's hard to compare Thorpe's uh, records with other uh, later decathletes, and also training methods, diet, equipment have all changed. Um, but he won by a larger margin than almost any other decathlete before or since. During the decathlon, um, at one, one morning he couldn't find his shoes. Um, one of the stories is they were stolen. I'm not sure if that's myth or real. He more likely misplaced them. But anyway, he had to compete in a mismatched pair of shoes where there were different sizes. And he actually had to wear, wear two pairs of socks on one of his feet. Um, and he still competed and, and and won the event. He was just sort of that much of a natural. Um, so he was, by the end of the Olympics, um, when he was t- presented his gold medals and two trophies, um, the Tsar of Russia trophy and the King of Sweden trophy for his Accomplishments, King Gustav V of Sweden um, declared him, "You sir are the most wonderful athlete in the world,"
0: hmm. and you know world fame that comes with it. Um, when were the when was the decision made to to strip him of those medals?
1: The decision came six months later, um, in January of nineteen thirteen, and it happened in the most peculiar way. Um, it was because he had played Bush League Baseball in the Eastern Carolina League for two summers in 1909 and 1910. Now, scores of college athletes were playing summer baseball during that period for pay for about 2 bucks a game or $30 a month. Most of them were playing under aliases. Dwight Eisenhower played under the name Wilson in the Kansas State League. There were so many... Um, pseudonyms in the eastern carolina league where jim thorpe played that it was called the pocahontas league because everyone was named john smith but jim thorpe played under the name jim thorpe he never tried to hide it his name was in the newspapers in north carolina from charlotte to raleigh to the rocky mount where he played in fayetteville um every day for those two summers and yet in in the winter of 1913 in worcester massachusetts Um, a reporter heard that there was a manager in town from North Carolina who had been Jim's manager in the Eastern Carolina League. And he went to interview him, found out, yes, Jim Thorpe had played pro baseball, um, and wrote the story, and then it sort of spread everywhere, to New York and um, around the country as this big scandal. Um, And within a couple of days, Pop Warner... Denied that he knew about what Jim Thorpe was doing, when in fact he knew all along he had been uh, sending Indian athletes to play summer baseball for years. His, one of his closest friends in Pennsylvania was a scout who brought Thorpe and two other Carlisle Indians down to the Eastern Carolina League that summer, that first summer. Um, Pop Warner had met with Thorpe at least twice during that period. Once when one was hunting with him in Oklahoma, and certainly they must have talked about what Thorpe had been doing. And yet when the when the moment of crisis came, Pop Warner denied all knowledge of it to save his own reputation. So did James E. Sullivan, the head of the Amateur Athletic Union and the American Olympic Committee, um, who also happened to be on the board of advisors of the Carlisle Athletic Association. He, too, had to have known what Jim Thorpe was doing but denied it, and those two along with the superintendent at Carlisle, Moses Friedman, who documents show had been writing Thorpe during that period when he was playing baseball, trying to persuade him not to play baseball, also claimed innocence. And those three were the most responsible for returning Thorpe's uh, medals to uh, the Olympic Committee and and the trophies and for rescinding his records. But the interesting thing is that technically... It was the wrong thing to do, even technically, because there was a rule in the Olympics that year that any challenge to someone's amateurism had to be made within 30 days of the end of the Olympics. This came six months later. So you can say it was technically wrong, and then more importantly, morally wrong. There were so many other athletes who were, in one fashion or another, um, professional more than Jim Thorpe was. Even George Patton who competed in the modern pentathlon, which was a different event from the regular pentathlon. It was all military events, uh, equestrian, uh, rifle shooting, um, and uh, fencing. And Patton had been training for months uh, with the U.S. Army paying him for those specific events. Is that being a professional? Jim Thorpe played minor league baseball, which had nothing to do with the events he was competing in. Was that professional? The Swedish team, the entire team, was granted six months leave from their jobs with pay to train for the Olympics. Was that professional? So, you know, the whole notion of what was amateur and what was professional was subjective.
0: It's interesting to view that from today's lens, right, where that that whole division has been blurred or... The line destroyed. Well, it's been right? wiped out. There, yeah, it has been no wiped out. Is now. That yeah. But, but, um,
1: and, go, go ahead. And, and you know, one of the things about amateurism, it sounds pure and noble, and just you know competing for competition's sake. But it's important to remember that the people who who promoted amateurism were, for the most part, wealthy people. You know, uh, like. Avery Brundage, who was a Chicago industrialist, or the uh, you know, Dukes and uh, in, in Marquises in uh, England and, and, and France, where, where the Olympics were formed. These were all people of the upper class. Most athletes are from the working class. Um, it's, it's easier for the rich people to say, we don't need money, and it's all pure, um, but it's a very different matter for the athletes themselves, most of whom come from different circumstances.
0: What uh, what was I? I didn't read in depth. What was the rationale, the reasoning uh, for the recent reinstatement of these medals?
1: Um, well, it was a combination. I mean, they, people have been pushing for it for decades, um, starting you know at, right after Jim Thorpe's death in 1953, or even before that. know, um, it, it was a constant effort. In 1983, they were partially restored. Um, The IOC uh, president, Juan Antonio Samaranch, went to Los Angeles right before the Olympic Games there in 84 and met with all of Jim Thorpe's children. He was dead for 30 years by then and gave them replica medals. Um, And and he basically sort of said he and the second place winners were co-winners of those medals at that point. Um, But his records were not fully restored until just July of this year. it was partly because the whole notion of amateurism has been changed so significantly, partly because of the understanding that even technically it was the wrong thing to do because of that 30-day requirement, and partly because of heavy, heavy, heavy lobbying um, by Native American groups. Anita de France, one of the key figures in the uh, International Olympic Committee, supported Jim Thorpe in this effort, as did. Um, his first biographers, Robert Wheeler and his wife, Florence Ridlin and many others, have been pushing for this for, for decades, and it just finally happened. Mm. I had nothing to do with it.
0: yeah <laughs> what, uh, how just this, good timing for me. Just good timing, yeah, yeah. Um, do we know what uh, Thorpe's feelings about this were, and what, what did this do to his uh, career?
1: Well, you know, right after uh, he lost the medals, he went into pro baseball. And for the next ten, twelve years, he was primarily focused just on on sports. And he was playing three sports you know during the year. He's playing baseball in the summer, football in the fall for the Canton Bulldogs and other teams uh, you know that were forming the National Football League eventually, and then basketball um, during the winter. So you know, he was sports minded. But as his uh, athletic skills were finally diminishing, he started to focus more and more on what had happened to him, and identifying more and more um, with his Native American experience. And so I would say starting about 1930, he really became focused on trying to get those medals and trophies uh, restored. It didn't happen during his lifetime, and he felt more and more disillusioned about it over the years.
0: You say more and more he he uh, started connecting, I guess, with his heritage. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, I would say the main Place that that happened, um, interestingly enough, was Hollywood. Um, in 1929 he ended up in Los Angeles and basically that was mostly his home base for the rest of his life, Southern California. Um, and during the 1930s and early 1940s, he was, he was uh, participating in the movie business. He was uh, appeared in more than 70 movies, uh, mostly as an extra sometimes with a few speaking parts. Often the the uh, promotions for the movie would say with Jim Thorpe or even starring Jim Thorpe when he barely had a role in the movies. But he did two important things during that period. He became the spokesperson for the 200 or 300 Native Americans on the fringes of the studios, um, pushing for them to hire actual uh, Native Americans to play Indians in all the Westerns as opposed to, white people dressed up in, in war paint, which was often happening in that period. Um, he was also pushing the studios to um, diminish the negative stereotypes of Indians in those movies. So, you know, he he, he was um, sort of the caregiver, for caretaker for a lot of the Native Americans uh, in Hollywood, and really that helped develop his sensibility as a Native American leader.
0: How did he get into... Uh that line of work uh, movies, you know, he's, he's a star athlete. Um, it would, I, to me, it wouldn't have been obvious that path. What, how did he, how did he make that path?
1: Well, you know, he ended up in Los Angeles by accident, basically, or um, he, he was part uh, he was the MC for this crazy uh, venture called the Bunyan Derby, <laughs> um, where, you know, this is during the uh, depression where uh, this publicist from Chicago CC Pyle persuaded people to to run from first from Los Angeles to New York one year, and then from New York to Los Angeles the next year. Um, long distance running, you know, stopping at various places along the route, uh, mostly Route 66 for the second half of the race. Um, and Jim Thorpe was the MC. He ended up in Los Angeles at the end of the race. CC Pyle was pretty much of a scam artist who didn't have the money to pay people at the end, so there was Jim Thorpe without any money looking for things to do in Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, he was well-known, so uh, when he went to the studios, uh, they, they were eager to, to have him in their movies, even if they didn't use him much, and that's how it happened.
0: Hmm. Let's take another break, come back with the final segment with David Marinus. Uh, his uh, new biography, fascinating biography, is called Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. And we'll talk more after the break about this, this fascinating, tragic in some ways, uh, post-athletic career that Jim Thorpe had. That not very well known. Um, and you can find David Marinus at davidmarinus.com. More following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with the writer David Marinus. About his new book, Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. Jim Thorpe, a gold medal winner at the Olympics. Um, he's in the Hall of Fame for uh, pro football. He was a professional basketball player, baseball player. As David Marinus said earlier in the program, he could probably beat anybody uh, at marbles as well. Just a, just a natural. Um, and we're learning about uh, the man behind the myth as, as well as the myth and the, the importance of the myth. Uh, So, I think still in schools today, David Marinus, uh, you get to, what, fourth grade history, there's a little section on Jim Thorpe, uh, usually, and that's probably where we start and stop, most of us.
1: You're right, Tom. I can't tell you how many people, when I was writing this book, I'd say, I'm writing a biography of Jim Thorpe, and they'd say, oh, I read about him in fourth grade. Um, You know, there have been books before this, I, I, I try to honor everyone who's tackled the subject. Um, but i I saw an opportunity to to put him in the context of the Native American experience as well as his great athleticism and that's what I tried to do in this book.
0: So he has this career you know all uh, you know three sports, m- mainly he's he was known for pro football if If he'd come around today or even a few decades ago, um, you know with his skills and in the NFL. Uh, he, when he came to the end of his career, would be set for life. But that wasn't the case then, right?
1: Well, the most he made was $300 a game. So, no, it certainly was not the case. Um, he, he he never got rich on his athletic skills. You know, today baseball players are getting $240 million contracts for 10 years and football players $46 million. Um, Jim Thorpe was not in that realm, and he really struggled um, during his post-athletic career, um, which, by the way, went on until he was 45 years old. He, he was playing baseball for a traveling team called the Harjo's Indians from Holdenville, uh, Oklahoma. They played a lot of the Negro League teams, uh, the Pittsburgh Crawfords of, of Josh Gibson and Cool Papa Bell. Um, but but basically, um, his post-athletic career, he was struggling. At one point... He, had to, he was digging ditches in Los Angeles during the Depression for a while. Um, as I said, he got all those jobs as an extra in the movies. He would be a greeter at various taverns. At one point, he, he tried to own a couple of bars and restaurants. He was moving from place to place. I document him living in 20 different states, holding one job after another, always looking for the break that would lead to stability that never came.
0: You use in the book a, a very poignant phrase. You call him an athletic migrant worker.
1: Yeah, that's what he was. I mean, you know, he 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 was constantly looking. He wanted to be a coach after his athletic career was over. Um, he got one shot at that for one year at Indiana University, um, but the head coach was. He was an assistant. The head coach was fired, and and he never got that job again. But you'll see him traveling from. From Ohio to Oklahoma um, to uh, Pennsylvania to New Jersey to Texas to Oklahoma um, to Florida, Uh, always, you know, playing one sport or another or looking for one job after another.
0: Mm. Uh, He was troubled by alcoholism, right?
1: Yes, he was. Uh, He uh, struggled with that his his whole life. Sometimes he said he was. On the wagon for a while. I uh, mean, this was during the period of prohibition, where uh, it was not that hard to get alcohol. Um, you know, it was uh, in his family. His 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 dad. who was kind of a, a ruffian. Uh, Hiram Thorpe uh, sold bootleg whiskey uh, in Indian Territory, um, and Jim Jim always. You know, he acknowledged that he struggled with it for for most of his life.
0: Uh, there was a movie made about him. Uh, during his lifetime, right? Burt Lancaster stars. Did he have any? Did Jim Thorpe have anything to do with that movie?
1: He was called a consultant and paid a modest sum for it, but he had very, not much to do with it. They really didn't want him to be around too much. Uh, the movie uh, Jim Thorpe, All American, stars Burt Lancaster. You know, a great movie star, a really good athlete. Um, Lancaster was thirty-seven when he played Thorpe you know, starting with playing Thorpe at age 16 when he came to Carlisle. Um, Of course, uh, Lancaster's not Native American. He wore makeup to look more like an Indian. Um, The director was Michael Curtiz, who gained uh, world fame as the director of Casablanca. And the movie is largely sympathetic to Jim Thorpe, but it's um, wrong in most of its, details and wrong in a, the largest way possible um, which is that the narrator of the movie and really sort of presented as the Jim Thorpe's savior is pop Warner you know who I document really let Jim down at the crucial time of his career um, but Warner is presented as the, the person who tries to save Thorpe and the, the uh, thread of the theme of it is, If only Jim had listened to Pop and more successfully assimilated into white culture, he wouldn't have had many of the problems that he had, which I found to be, um, you know, not just wrong, but really reprehensible.
0: Um, Jim Thorpe, you you know, you could see this story is tragic. There are tragic elements, right? You could also see resilience here. Uh, Tell me about that. It seems like uh, Thorpe was always trying, always trying, tr- tr- financial stability for one thing, never quite made it, but always trying.
1: Yeah, I mean, he, he struggled. I mean, he struggled with alcohol. He struggled with not being around uh, his family much. So his first two wives divorced him, largely because of his drinking and his absence. Um, his seven children didn't see him much. as a, When they were kids, they grew to, to uh, honor and, and love him later in their own lives. Um, There was a reconciliation with all of them. Um, So, and, you know, moving from town to town, never quite getting the break that he kept thinking he would get, um, made me think of it in some sense as a tragedy. Um, You know, I kept hoping for something better to happen to him, which it doesn't, until he finally dies of a heart attack at age 65 in a trailer in Lomita, California. But in a larger sense, I saw what happened to Jim as sort of emblematic of the Native American experience. You know, earlier in his career, 1915, the most popular statue in America was called "The End of the Trail," and it showed an Indian slumped on horseback, defeated. Um, You know, Manifest Destiny had prevailed; The, the Native American race was obsolete. That was the message. Um, there were fewer than 300,000 Native Americans at that point, um, but it didn't happen. Indians did find a way. Indigenous peoples did find a way to survive. their you know, the the numbers have grown ever since. Um, they 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 kill the Indian, save the man didn't really happen. I mean, Native Americans to a large degree are f- able to hold on to their heritage, their culture, their re finding their languages. Um, so in all those respects, uh, I see Jim Thorpe in a similar way. Everything that was thrown against him, all of the obstacles, whether they're of his own making or more often societies, he just kept going. And so in that sense, I see it more as a story of perseverance than as a pure tragedy.
0: There, There's a town in Pennsylvania called Jim Thorpe. Uh, but there but therein lies a tale of a final indignity. I was just flabbergasted,
1: yes, uh, Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania I you know I have nothing against the people there um, or you know they're not responsible for for uh, much of it but but what happened was um they were they were east mock Chunk in mock Chunk, Pennsylvania. Um, when Jim Thorpe died, his third wife, Patsy Thorpe. Uh, was unhappy with the way things were going in Oklahoma in terms of building a mausoleum for him. So she essentially looked for another place to bury him. She went, you know, the best bidder. She went to Tulsa and Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. And while she was in Philadelphia, she saw saw a television show about these 2 down on down-and-their-luck twin towns, Mock Chunk and East Mock Chunk. And she developed this uh, scheme, this idea that she could persuade them to change their name to Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, uh, promise them that they might get a hospital and a college and maybe even the Pro Football Hall of Fame if they did so, and they could have Jim Thorpe's bones and build a mausoleum and honor him. Well, they did change their name. Um, He is buried there in a place that he never set foot in his life. Um, And his sons later tried to file, you know, lawsuits to bring him back to oklahoma where he said he wanted to be buried but it um the courts ruled against him and he's now in jim thorpe pennsylvania
0: hmm boy you you, <laughs> you sure as a reading that i'm i'm pulling for him boy i sure wish he'd be in oklahoma where he wanted to be right but uh, that's where he is in jim thorpe pennsylvania um it, You've spent you. You say you have to be obsessed with figures to to write a biography about them. What what's come out of your obsession with uh, with Jim Thorpe? What's the, you know, what's a, a a big change in your view of him, or that you'd like us to have uh, have changed in our view of him?
1: Well, you know, I tried to explore the man and the myth. It's only by exploring the real human being that you can you can see the greatness because we're all flawed human beings. Um, and I also tried to, um, as I just pointed out, show the perseverance that he had as a human being as emblematic of the larger Native American experience in this country. And that really was that combination of the person and his race that, that drew me to this story, and that is stuck with me and that I learned so much about as I was researching it.
0: Uh, finally, uh, what are you on to next? Where are you... Uh... Where, are you going to move somewhere else, uh, persuade your wife to go somewhere else? Uh, who, who, if you can tell well, first, us, what, who are, where are you on to next? Uh,
1: first, I promised her that we'd take a gap year. I've been writing books nonstop for 30 years. So I plan to travel next year, even coming out to Utah, which i oh great you know, seeing the, the Great uh, West, which I, we haven't really been able to do. So that's part of it. After that, I will probably tackle the second volume of my biography of Barack Obama.
0: All right. Well, we'll look look forward to that. Yeah. Well, you moved to Chicago for that, or what do you do on that one?
1: Yeah. I mean, I've already done the Indonesia and Hawaii and Kenya parts of it, so this would be rooted in Chicago and Washington, D.C.
0: Yeah, wonderful. Well, it's a fascinating read, this biography of uh, Jim Thorpe and some great other biographies as well, including those of Roberto Clemente and Vince Lombardi, Barack Obama, as you said, uh, Bill Clinton, um, and uh, the latest is "Pathlit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. It's out and available now. The author is David Marinus. You can find him at davidmarinus.com. David Marinus, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Great to talk with you, Tom. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah.